0: Isn't the presence of God so beautiful? Isn't it just amazing when he invades our hearts, our minds, where he just kind of, the reality of who he is starts uh, starts overwhelming us. And I don't know about you, but that time of worship was just so beautiful for me in terms of just soaking up again his, his goodness. He, he's worthy, not only because he is all-powerful, and majestic and seated on high, although he is, but he is worthy because he is. his love is breathtaking because he is the kindest being in the universe. I'm slightly undone by him, so I apologize if it just takes me a moment to get myself together. Um, I'm going to be looking uh, through the book of Esther this morning, so if you would like to flick there, you're really welcome to, um, or we're kind of going to cover quite a few of the chapters in the book, so I won't um, read through the scripture, as it were. I think it might take us a little bit too long, um, but I'm going to tell you the story so that we're all on the same page, if that's all right. Um, and what I like to call this sermon is um, What the Enemy Wishes You Didn't Know. So if you're someone for sermon titles, that's your title. But the book of Esther is a fascinating one. Um, it's set in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East, with a, a king who was called Ahasuerus. And he was the most powerful man on the planet at that time. And we're told that King Ahazarus's empire went from India to Ethiopia. It was a huge, massive empire that he had. And to prove his pomp and his greatness, to prove just how almighty he was at that point in time, he decided that what he would do is to throw a party to end all parties that would show off just how glorious he was. And so we're told at the beginning of the book of Esther that he throws a party that lasts just over six months. And throughout time... Pretty impressive, I know. Throughout that time, there's wine freely flowing, there's food in abundance, people are drinking out of golden goblets. He he really is inviting the world to come and look in and see just how incredible he is. And at the end of the six months, he opens the doors of the citadel and invites the commoners, everybody, to come in for one week to end this six-month party, and they drink and they drink and they eat and they eat until they've had their fill. And we're told that at the end of all of this, he was merry with, ma- with wine, which kind of makes sense after all of that drinking. And he decided that what he would love to do is kind of the epitome of his glory is to call his wife, his queen Vashti, to come and parade herself before all the people who are also presumably merry with wine at this point unsurprisingly Vashti doesn't really love the idea of coming and parading in front of all these drunken men and so she does the unthinkable and she says no to the king And. You can just imagine how humiliating it is. He's just spent six months proving how awesome he is, and his wife humiliates him in front of everybody and denies him what he wants in that moment. And so the king gets together with the officials, and they start talking about the problem of Vashti. The problem is not just that this queen has said no to a king, which is humiliating enough, but that now women and wives everywhere will believe that it's okay to say, No to their husbands, and obviously you can't live in a society like that. (laughs) So they come and discuss the problem of Vashti, and they decide there's only one thing to be done. She's got to be made an example of, uh, she loses the throne, she loses her crown, she is no longer a queen, she's thrown out of the kingdom, because you can't have a woman like that on the throne. And so the officials say to the king, listen, why don't we do this? Why don't we throw a kind of beauty pageant, if you like? Let's gather in from all corners of the kingdom all of the beautiful virgins in the land. We'll bring them into the palace. They'll be trained, and then they can have a moment with you, a night with you, and you can decide which one is your favorite, and we will make that beautiful woman queen. And this is where Esther enters the story. She is a Jew who is an orphan who has been raised by her cousin Mordecai. And she is a beautiful virgin and she gets caught up in all of this that she's brought into the palace. And Mordecai just has one piece of advice for her. Jews are not the favorite of the time. And so he says to her, don't tell anyone who you really are. Just keep it a secret between you and me. Just do everything that they tell you to do and God be with you. And so she goes into the palace and she doesn't tell anyone that she's a Jew or an orphan. They just know her to be Esther and she wins favor with everybody there. And in fact, in this incredible turn of events, Esther becomes the next queen of Persia. And this is where the story gets really interesting. One of the king's most trusted advisors is a man named Haman. And for various uh, various reasons in the story, which we won't go into now, he hates the Jews. And he comes up with this plot to destroy the Jews. And he gets the king to sign off on this, convincing the king that the Jews are a real threat. And so there's this um, edict that's issued throughout the land, which basically proclaims that the Jews are going to be annihilated throughout the empire. And Mordecai, Esther's cousin, comes to the outside of the palace wearing sackcloth and ashes. And he starts making a scene which if you understand anything of the culture of the day you couldn't do. You were never to go before the king showing yourself to be sad or angry or frustrated there was a penalty of death for that so esther when she hears what mordecai is doing is understandably worried it comes to and is trying to figure out what are you doing mordecai what's wrong and he says to her it's all lost. This is an absolute nightmare. We're in so much trouble. You've got to do something. If not you and all your people, all of us will be annihilated. And Esther says to Mordecai, I like to paraphrase this bit. She says, are you kidding me? do you not know who I am? I'm just a woman. You see a queen or a crown, but we both know that's meaningless. Don't you remember Vashti? A woman in this culture, in this kingdom has no power whatsoever. I am insignificant and I am nothing. And unless the king calls me, I can't do anything. And the king hasn't called me for over a month. I can't go to the king. And Mordecai saying, no, you've Got to go, you've got to do something. We're looking to you to do something. And she says, but the penalty is death if I go to the king and he doesn't want me there. And Mordecai starts speaking words to Esther that we'll look at in a moment. Where he starts changing the game for her. And he starts speaking words of courage in her that change her mind. And she thinks, okay, well, what we're going to do is you pray and fast for three days and I'll pray and fast for three days. And after three days, I will go to the king. And if I die, I die, but I'll go and see if I can do something. And so Esther goes to the king, the unthinkable. She uses her own initiative and her own brain and goes to the king. And the king amazingly has mercy on her. And rather than issue a warrant for her death, he actually says, what, what can I do for you, Esther? And she says, I'd love you and Haman to come to a party Great. The king likes parties. So that works for him. And that evening they go to her house for a party and the king says to her, okay, we're here. What can I do for you? And she says, I'd love you in Haman to come tomorrow night for another party. Brilliant. So they go again to another party. And in that second party, the king says to her, Esther, what is it that I can do for you? And in that moment, she exposes her vulnerability, and she tells him her real identity, and she pleads for the life of her people, and she exposes the true evil of Haman's plan, and in that moment, something incredible happens. A woman who is insignificant, an orphan, the least of the least, changes the course of a nation as she pleads with the king, and the king's eyes are opened, and Haman is sentenced to death, and the Jewish people are saved. It's a remarkable story, one of the stuff of fairy tales, except it actually is historical fact. If you haven't read the book of Esther, I so recommend you do. It's a fascinating book, and it's amazing because God is actually never explicitly mentioned in the book, although you can see his fingerprints all over the story. And so I I love this story, partly because I'm from the Middle East and I'm a woman, but I love this story because I really think it is a springboard for all of us to understand who God has made us to be and what his intention is for each of us. Each of us are history makers. Each of us are nation changers. That is what you were created to be. I, I don't care where you are in stage of life, but you were made to shape nations. That is the destiny over you because you are an heir of the kingdom of God. And so we're gonna use this story as a springboard really to, to look through and to discuss some things that I really believe the enemy doesn't want us to know. But if we understand, if we get the revelation of the truth of what the Bible tells us and uses this story to do so, something so powerful can happen in us where we become men and women who are entirely unstoppable in the mission of God on this earth. It's a pretty exciting opportunity So let's go into it. What the enemy wishes you didn't know. The first thing that I believe the enemy wishes we didn't know is that we are better than we've ever believed. You're not just made for great acts, but you yourself are a great creation. In the book of 2 Corinthians, we're told in chapter 5, verse 17... That we are brand new creations. If anyone is in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. The Bible tells us that if you have put your hope in Jesus, if you have understood what the cross and the resurrection is about, and now you put your trust in Jesus, everything about your old self has disappeared. It, in fact, is died, has died and has been buried with Christ. And you who are alive today are now a completely brand new creation. So many of us see the cross and resurrection of Jesus as a morality program, as if the cross and resurrection of Jesus is all about behavior modification, as if what Jesus came to earth to do is to clean us up, to make us a little bit tidier, a little bit whiter than we used to be, take off all of those grubby stains from that white robe that you wear. That's a lie. The cross of Jesus Christ is not primarily about morality. It is not about God coming to earth to make bad people good. For some of you, that may be your whole understanding of what Jesus is about, that his biggest intention with you is just to help you be good. That's not what he's about at all. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is not about morality. It's about sonship, the Bible tells us that the cross and resurrection is about making dead people live. It's about bringing orphans who are abandoned and alone into a family, into a place of belonging, into a place of sonship and into a place of inheritance in the kingdom. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is not a holy God making bad people good. It's a father God making orphans into sons and heirs. And it Everything about you has been transformed at the cross and resurrection. Jesus didn't come and just clean you up and give you his white robe, and we talk that kind of analogy and it's unhelpful because what happens is we as Christians feel like we can take that robe on and off whenever we're slightly nervous that we might get that robe a little bit dirty and it's on us to keep that robe white, that's simply a lie. What the cross has done, the Bible tells us, is put the very seed and supernatural DNA of God into each and every one of us, into every part of us. Every part of your being, though you may physically look similar, to before you were a Christian. Every part of your being has been changed. You are brand new. In 2 Corinthians, a little bit further on in chapter 5, we're told that Jesus who knew no sin, he became the substance of sin on the cross so that we who knew no righteousness would become the very righteousness of Christ. Every part of you has taken the substance, substance of the righteousness of God. Every part of your body, every cell of your being is now glowing with the righteousness of God. If you are in Christ, this is true of you. And some of you might be thinking, but you don't know what I've done. It actually doesn't even matter what you've done because the truth is still applicable to you. The reality of who you are is this, that you are the righteousness of God. And the beauty of this is that if we enter into that reality in terms of understanding it, in terms of accepting it, then our behavior easily follows what is already true of us. And this is why the enemy hates this truth because the enemy knows that you become like what you focus on. The enemy knows that the reality you are most aware of is the reality you will reflect. He knows that our behavior flows not actually primarily from our desires, but primarily from our understanding of our identity. And so the enemy wants you to believe that you are still your old self. He wants you to believe that the cross hasn't had the power to transform your nature. No, no. He wants you to think that the cross was great at cleaning you up, but he wants you primarily to think this, that you are still the old self, still struggling with all the old stuff, still hoping that somewhere, somehow you'll overcome all the old junk. But the enemy is a liar. You are transformed, and in being made the righteousness of God, in fact, everything you need for life and godliness, the Bible tells us, is already in you, is already in us. We need to just understand what heaven is declaring over us and enter into that reality. Now, (laughs) I know that this makes Christians nervous. I know this makes leaders nervous. Because we start thinking, no, no, you can't tell people they're the righteousness of God. Then they'll keep going in their sin and then just act like it's okay. The beauty, the paradox of this is that once we fully understand where the righteousness, that is the truth that helps us overcome every sin cycle we live in. Legalism has no power in helping you overcome sin. Believing that you've got to push harder and somehow achieve something has no power in helping you overcome sin. Some of you have gone through sin, confess, sin, confess so many times you don't even know where you are in the cycle. And the enemy has made you believe you're always going to be locked in this cycle. You can't do anything about it because it's actually the most natural thing for you to do to sin. So how on earth are you ever going to get free? But the enemy is a liar. When righteousness is your substance, then the most natural thing for you to do is not sin, but it is requires an understanding, a revelation in our hearts and minds of who we now really are. You are the righteousness of God. I think I've told this story here before, but I'll just say it again. There, as an illustration of this, there once was a man, true story, addicted to drugs in all sorts of chaos in his life, became a Christian, wonderfully, wonderfully saved by God. But he was struggling with how to overcome his drug addiction. And he was speaking to his pastor one day and he said, I, I really don't know what to do. I'm, I really want to break free of this, but I'm stuck in it and I don't know what to do. And the pastor said, No, it's, it's re- actually very simple what to do. Don't worry. Just keep telling yourself, I am the righteousness of Christ. And the guy was like, Yeah, I don't think you understand. I have a drug problem. I'm not entirely sure how that's going to help me. And the guy said, no, I, I promise you this just whatever you're doing all throughout your day, keep telling yourself, I am the righteousness of Christ. Declare it over yourself. And the guy's like, okay, so what do I do if I, if I get up in the morning and like every other morning I want drugs? That's absolutely fine. Just declare over yourself, I'm the righteousness of Christ. What, what do I do if I roll up my joint? That's fine. Just keep declaring over yourself, I am the righteousness of Christ. And on and on, the guy went, you know, what if I light up? What if I put it to my lips? That's fine. Just keep declaring to yourself, I am the righteousness of Christ. And so the next morning, sure, this guy gets up, straight away needs drugs. That's what he's done for many, many years. Starts rolling up his cigarette, starts putting everything together, gets his lighter. The entire time he's doing this, he's declaring over himself out loud, I am the righteousness of Christ. He puts the joint to his lips one last time, says, I'm the righteousness of Christ. And suddenly revelation comes to him in that moment and he thinks, I am the righteousness of Christ. And he gets it. It's like suddenly the lights go on in his brain and he understands everything about his substance has changed and he never smokes that cigarette. And in that one moment, the addiction is broken, not because he was choosing really hard to do the right stuff or to be good, but because finally something happened in his brain where Holy Spirit revealed to him, your very substance has been changed. You don't need to do this anymore. If we want to walk in freedom, we can be a community who enters into the reality of our identity in Christ. There is no other way, which is why I don't think accountability groups that focus on sin work. They might modify our behavior through shame because we're embarrassed to say again that we've done something wrong. So you know the groups I'm talking about. We get together, we We all confess the sins that we've done that week or the sins that we struggle with, and we ask each other to pray for those sins, and we all focus in on the sin, and that sin becomes the biggest thing, and we say next week when we meet again, please, will you ask me if I've done this sin? And next week, everyone comes together, and you feel terrible because you did do the sin, and now you have to tell people about it, and it just goes round and round in circles, and if it ever works, it's because shame has taken hold, so you can't tell people about it anymore, so you just... Don't do it because you don't want to feel bad. True? All it does is um, bring us into a bondage that is a new kind of bondage, which is legalism. It doesn't free our hearts. We just don't allow our hands to do what our hearts want to. But when we get identity, our hearts are free so that we never want to sin again. The desire is gone because our identity has been understood. And so real accountability groups are us getting together and speaking identity over each other. Us getting together and telling each other who you really are. Us getting together and speaking gold from one another because that's the truth. Us getting together and declaring over each other until we're all blue in the face, you are the righteousness of Christ. Everything about your substance has been changed because that is the truth. And I don't say this from inexperience. I say this from experience in my own life and from years of pastoral care, where I used to sit with people week in, week out, doing pastoral ministry and counseling them through their issues and thinking, gosh, we're never really getting anywhere. Even if we are, there's still a struggle in the heart. And then I finally realized when we prayed together and just loved on each other and celebrated who God had made us to be, those things just seemed to miraculously fade away. And they do, because you are now the righteousness of Christ. You are better than you've ever believed. There's this great movie called Unbroken, which I watched a few years ago. i recommend it. It's not an easy thing to watch. It's based on a true story, but it is a powerful story. And it's about this man who was, I think it was in the first world war. And I won't ruin this story for you, but (laughs) In the the story, there's a moment where the main character says to a friend of his, my older brother always thought I was better than I am. And the friend just looks at him and says, who says you're not? And as I was watching the movie, God started speaking to me and Holy Spirit started challenging me and saying in the book of Hebrews, we're told that your older brother, Jesus, speaks a better word over you. He speaks righteousness over you. He speaks greatness over you. Your older brother Jesus tells you that he thinks you are wonderful and awesome and fearfully made. He tells you that you were made for incredible, incredible feats in the miraculous. Who is it who tells you you're not? See, we need to be a people who put our filters on in our brains. And when there are words that are in your mind that don't sound like your older brother Jesus, then we need to kick those words out. Because they're simply not true. Unless the words in your head about you are about you being the righteousness of Christ, or about you having everything you need for life and godliness, or about you being able to do the impossible, then they're simply not true of you. And there's a nervousness around Christianity that's come in because we're so nervous of being prideful, that we have kind of got into a place where the enemy has convinced us that it's better as Christians to think less of ourselves in case we should ever veer into pride than it is to understand who we really are. So when people like myself start talking like this, some of us get a little bit jittery and a little bit nervous because you can't be saying these things. Everyone's going to be really puffed up and proud about themselves. The problem with that is that it's actually a lie from the enemy. And the reason is the enemy. Knows that if we think less of ourselves than is entirely accurate, we will be robbed of destiny. If you look at the Bible, every time the people of God thought less of themselves than what God had declared over them, something went horribly wrong, and it was a loss of destiny. Starts right in the Garden of Eden. Eve is speaking to the servant. She should never have been, to the serpent. She should never have been speaking to him, but anyway, she was. And he starts questioning the goodness of God and the intention of God. And he says to her, hey, Eve, why don't you eat of the fruit of the tree? It's great. You will be like God. And she thinks, wow, that sounds amazing. I'd love to be like God. And so she does what the serpent suggests. She takes of the fruit of the tree and she eats the fruit so that she will be like God. What is the problem? She already was like God. She was made in his image. She was made exactly as the representation of God himself. And yet she did not know all that she was and all that she carried. And so when the enemy came to her and suggested that she do something to achieve what she actually already had in grace, which is incidentally the root of religion, she gave into it. She didn't know who she really was when you look at the Israelites in the desert, they know who God is. They've seen him do awesome things. They know his promises. They scout out the promised land and there's incredible, incredible fruit in this. Scouts come back and they're saying, wow, it's amazing. It really is everything God said it would be. He's so faithful, but here's the problem. We can't possibly take the land, not because God isn't true, but because we are grasshoppers. They didn't understand who God had declared them to be. They thought less of themselves than what the kingdom declared over them, which meant that we're told an entire generation dies in the desert. It is so important that you and I come to a correct conclusion of who we are. It's so important that we don't believe the enemy's lies, that we'll become proud. No, no, no. So don't, whatever you do, don't think you're the righteousness of God. If you do that, then obviously you're going to be super proud. Don't think that you are a great creation, because if you think that, then you'll think you're great. That's terrible. You'll be prideful. It's simply a lie. Humility is not thinking less of yourself than is accurate. Humility is understanding who made you great in the first place. And so the first thing the enemy wishes you didn't know. You're not just made for great acts. You yourself are a great creation. Everything about you is brand new. Second thing the enemy doesn't want you to know is that you're more than the world's estimations. This story of Esther is so profound because Esther really, there was nothing expected of her from the world around her. The only important thing there was that she was beautiful, and even that is kind of a low-level priority. But the point was this, that a woman who was an orphan who was a Jew was nothing, and she knew it. And so when Mordecai comes to her and says, you're going to have to do the most courageous thing ever seen in this kingdom. You're going to have to do something that is unthinkable and you can do it. You're going to have to go to the king. Uninitiated, uninvited, you're going to have to go. She has bought into everything her culture has told herself about herself, which is that she can't do anything significant. So she says, I can't. She says, you're going to have to find someone else. You're looking at the wrong place for salvation because I'm just a woman and I can't do anything. And look at what happened to Vashti. Don't you understand that I will be killed? There is no power in me. And yet Mordecai starts saying to her, Esther, what if that's not true? What if you were brought into a kingdom for such a time as this? What if you were made for more than what the world has told you? What if there is more destiny on you than what you could ever have believed before? What if when people have told you you're nothing or no one or invisible or insignificant, What if that's simply not true and God has intended more for you? And he starts speaking courage into her as he plants this thought in her mind that maybe you were made for greatness, maybe you actually can do something here, and something shifts so that she goes from, I simply can't, to, okay, we'll pray and fast and I will no matter what the consequences. Something happens in that moment. And the beautiful thing for me in this story is that Mordecai is just a faint picture of Holy Spirit. For the believer, Holy Spirit is consistently speaking these words of courage into us. If we'll just tune in to listen. He's consistently telling us that what culture and the world around us tells us about ourselves simply is not the full story. It's not even scratching the surface. The problem is for many of us Christians, we've bought into this kind of view of Holy Spirit that makes us nervous of him. And the enemy loves that because he doesn't want us to walk in friendship with the Spirit. He doesn't want us to tune into the real words of Holy Spirit because he knows there is power there and empowerment there for us. And so the enemy loves to kind of propagate our poor theology on this because many Christians believe that Holy Spirit is like the policeman of heaven, that he runs around, and I know I've said this before here, but I'll keep saying this until we all get it. Holy Spirit is not running around after you, trying to make you feel bad about your sin. We all think that that's what he does. We talk about it. We say, Holy Spirit convicted me of my sin, and then I felt really bad. I was gossiping at work, and then Holy Spirit convicted me, and then I knew I shouldn't have done that, and it was terrible, and that's how we talk, and it disperses this idea throughout all of the body that Holy Spirit is running around chasing each of us, telling us when we've been bad and naughty so that we can feel really terrible about it and be shamed out of that behavior. That simply is not the truth. John 16 tells us that the Holy Spirit convicts the world, convicts the unbeliever of their sin so that they will turn to repentance. We're never told in scripture that Holy Spirit convicts the believer of our sin. The only thing Holy Spirit, we're told, does to the believer is convict us of our sonship, convict us of our righteousness, convict us of our standing with God. Galatians 4, Romans 8. Holy Spirit is chasing you and is convicting you, but not about your sin, about who you really are. He's telling you consistently your identity in Christ. He is speaking righteousness and greatness over you if you'll only tune in to listen. That's all he's interested in telling you. He wants to keep telling you your identity. He wants to keep telling me my identity so we wake up and we believe it. So we live lives that reflect it. What I love is that the words of God are not simply wishful thinking. They're not simply nice thoughts that he throws out there for us to make us feel all warm and gooey inside. The words of God have power to accomplish everything they say. It's what the disciples saw Jesus do. He never prayed for the sick, he declared healing. He told the man who was lame, get up and walk. And as he said those words, get up and walk, power was released to that man so he was able to get up and walk. He says to the man with the withered hand who no one seemed to care about, Stretch out your hand. And as he says those words, stretch out your hand, power is released for the man to stretch out his hand. When Jesus talks to the woman caught in adultery, where all the people want to stone her and he's talked to the people and he's sent them away. And the woman is standing alone with Jesus. And he says to that woman, go and sin no more. And often we read those words as if Jesus was bringing last minute conviction to her so that she would feel bad. Enough never to go and do the same sin again. That's utter rubbish. No, when Jesus said to her, Go and sin no more, it was a word of empowerment because when he said those words, power was released in and of the sound that he made so that she would go and sin no more. It's not a word of conviction, it's a word of power. It's what Peter knew. So when Peter is in the boat and Jesus is walking on the waves, Peter says to Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Peter understood this. He'd watched this so many times. He knew when Jesus utters the word, the power is there to do that which it demands. And so Jesus says to him, come. And in that moment, power is released for Peter to get up out of a boat and start walking on waves. And we're told in the story that it's when the sound of the wind and the waves overwhelms him that Peter begins to sink. What sound are you tuning into? Because I tell you, Holy Spirit is speaking to you and me every second of every day. The Bible says that God's thoughts towards us are more than the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of thoughts. And every second of every day, Holy Spirit is not speaking words of conviction around your sin to you. Every second of every day, he is speaking words of empowerment and courage into you is telling you who you are and what the greatness of your destiny is. He is consistently telling you, you were made for more. You were made for the miraculous. You were made to live in an invisible kingdom. You were made to see the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and the dead raise. He is consistently telling you in your schools and your colleges and your workplaces and in your homes. He's telling you, you've got this, not because you have any power in and of yourself, but because because everything about your substance has, be, has received supernatural DNA from God himself. So there is power inherently in you now because God lives in you to accomplish everything that you need. He's speaking words of empowerment over you. You're better than you've ever believed and you are more than the world's estimations. I don't care what color you are, what gender you are, what age you are, I don't care what is in your bank balance. I wanna tell you, you are more than the world's estimations. You were made for greatness, full stop. And when he speaks those words, it's not wishful thinking. Number three, You're not outnumbered. The enemy loves to make us think that we're outnumbered. He loves to make us think that we're backed into a corner, that we're crouching down in a corner somewhere, and every demon from hell is against us, and there's no way out. He loves to make us think that. But he's a liar. Let's do some simple maths for a second. The Bible tells us that when the devil fell from heaven. He took one third of the angels of heaven with him. That means for every demon, there are two angels. True? Yeah? With me on the math so far. So that means if you discount God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, who I'm sure you'll agree with me are a majority in and of themselves, but even if we discount God himself, the demons are still outnumbered two to one wherever they are. True? So when the enemy comes to us, when we're in the middle of a battle and we're in the middle of a storm and things really are looking terrible, and there are those moments where things really feel like they could not get worse, the enemy is telling us you're outnumbered, you're backed into a corner, you might as well just lie down and die because. Everything is going wrong. But he's a liar because even in that moment, he is still the one who is outnumbered. Even in that moment, it's still not a fair fight for him. You are always surrounded more by more angels than you are surrounded by demons. It's simple maths. You better believe that when Esther was walking down that corridor to the throne room, The enemy was all around her telling her, turn around, turn around, turn around. The enemy was telling her, this is ridiculous, you're one measly woman, you're entering a room full of powerful men, what are you going to do? You're entirely outnumbered. The enemy did not want to see the Jewish people saved and so everything around her in the atmosphere was telling her it was a bad idea that she was backed into a corner and she should run away and hide somewhere, but the enemy simply is a liar. And even in that moment, even if she was one woman going into a room full of men, I can tell you there were more with her than there were against her. It's kind of scary standing up on a platform in front of a room full of people. I often get asked, how do you do it? Just one vertically challenged woman, how do you do it? I might be small, but I know that there are angels all around me. I know the living God himself lives inside of me. I'm never outnumbered, and neither are you. I love the story in the book of Kings where the prophet Elisha and his servant are in the house, and there's an entire army coming against them. Just the two of these guys against an army. And the servant is understandably concerned at this point. And Elisha seems absolutely unfazed by the whole thing. And eventually, Elisha must have got fed up of the servant freaking out and just said, God, open his eyes. And the servant's eyes are opened. And he sees thousands upon thousands. We're told the mountains were covered by angels and fiery chariots. And Elisha says, there's more with us than there are with them. That is always true of you. I want to tell you, if you are in a battle today, and if the waves are threatening to sink your boat, and you're overwhelmed, and the voice that is in your head keeps telling you to turn around because you are outnumbered, don't listen to the voice. You are not outnumbered, and you are never backed into a corner. There are always more angels than there are demons around you. And as Christians, we've got to get good at tuning into the angelic around us. For far too long, the enemy has kind of got us engaged in tuning into the demonic And that precipitates this idea again and again that there are more demons wherever we go. So we talk about it to each other and we go into a shop and we recommend no one else goes in there from our church because you had a funny feeling when you were in there. There was definitely demons in that room. And We talk like this and we propagate fear to one another rather than whenever we walk into those areas. And I'm not saying check your brains out. I'm not saying go into places that are really demonic and act like it doesn't matter. What I'm saying is this. We've got to change our focus and understand that God lives in us and we are consistently surrounded by the angelic. We've got to understand them. when we walk into places and we feel a demonic atmosphere, we don't need to be afraid and we don't need to live in some kind of, oh, backtrack from this now. We need to understand that there are angels with us and we can change the atmosphere wherever we go because there are more with us than there are against us always. And we don't worship angels, if any of you are nervous about that, as if that's what I'm encouraging. I'm really not, because Jesus is the most beautiful, wonderful God there is. It would be insane to worship anything else. But it's equally dumb to ignore the angelic and to focus in on the demonic. Because it gives us a wrong understanding of what is going on in the world around us. You are never outnumbered. Number four, fourth thing the enemy doesn't want you to know. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. I want to say before I go further, because I can get passionate around this point. I love prayer. I think people of prayer are awesome. They are warriors and giants in the kingdom. I think intercession is an incredible thing. Okay? But I think the enemy has kind of infiltrated and hijacked intercession a little bit. Not always, but sometimes. And he's kind of made us believe that the more we cry and the more depressed we feel, the better intercessions we probably are. And you've got people who kind of carry the burden of intercession. And you know what I'm talking about. So you know, I can see smiles all around this room. So I know we're on the same page. And we talk about our intercession as if it's this horrible, weighty gift that heaven has given us, but we will do it for the sake of the body. And we spend hours with our faces down weeping as we think through all the brokenness that we're trying to bring before the Lord and we're utterly depressed and we're utterly weighed down. And that must mean that we're really good intercessors because we're feeling the pain so strongly. That's utter rubbish. That is the way to sink yourself into depression and never get out. (laughs) Can I be this honest? If you are an intercessor, God bless you. Don't let the enemy suck you into completely ineffective intercession. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. It's interesting to me that Vashti and Esther actually did a similar thing. They both defied the culture of their day. They both did something that was initiated by themselves that wasn't invited. And yet Vashti had disastrous results and was entirely ineffective. And Esther saw the change of a nation. Esther understood feasting and joy. She understood the king's love language, actually. She was very wise. And it's in this story, it's just a faint picture for us. It's an invitation to understand that Feasting and joy is a context for breakthrough. Why do I say this? Well, in Psalm 23, we're told that in the presence of our enemies, in the lowest point, in the place where the waves are all around you, about to drown you, what does God do? Does he get you to fast? Does he get you to weep? Does he get you to wear sackcloth and ashes? No. What does God do? He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies and invites us to sit down and eat. We're told in another Psalm, I forget which one now, but that God laughs at his enemies. That's called spiritual warfare for us. Laughter. And so many people feel like joy is kind of a frivolity It's an add an extra. It's just for the emotional Christian who doesn't really understand suffering around them. That's absolute rubbish. Joy is part of the fruit of the spirit. So it's not about emotionalism, first of all. And second of all, Nehemiah chapter 8 says joy is strength. If you're in a battle, God knows you need strength. And so you better find some joy. It's incredibly serious stuff. The enemy lies to us and belittles joy because he knows what a sword it is in our hands. And so he makes us feel like joy means we haven't really engaged or understood the problem. That joy is just silly. Why waste time laughing? Get on your knees and cry for goodness sake. The enemy is a liar. He understands that joy equals strength. It really is as simple as that. I tell you, if you are in a battle at the moment, if you need breakthrough at the moment, this is the one. One thing that will help you come into that breakthrough, and it is joy because joy equals strength. And I'm not saying this because I've never understood pain. I'm not saying this because I don't understand intercession or prayer because actually I love praying and I love interceding for people. But I'm saying this because I've walked in the reality of this. You can choose how you do your intercession, but I want to guarantee to you today, if you choose the depressed route, you won't see any fruit. If you choose the joy route, you'll walk into breakthrough. It really is simple. I can't remember if I've said this story here before or not, but um. When Julian and I got married a few years ago, we had kind of a a very surreal wedding experience because his mum almost died on our wedding day. And we got a call the night before our wedding um, from the doctor suggesting that maybe we would call off the wedding because um, they anticipated she would die that night. And um, they actually induced a coma. She was in a coma for the entire of our wedding day. And the whole time, we were kind of waiting for a call that thankfully never came, but we were waiting for it, a call that would say that she'd actually died. The amazing thing is God brought about a miracle and she's still alive and well today. But it was a crazy day. It was joy and sadness and it was mad. And a couple of months after our wedding day, um, we were at a conference in America, in the States, in California. And, um, and we, were <laughs> we were at this conference and we were having dinner with all the delegates at the conference. They'd hired out this big hotel restaurant. There was hundreds of people all sitting down very nicely having their meals. And um, this lady walked past me and put her hand on my shoulder and as she did so, Holy Spirit fell on me in such a way that I started howling in laughter. Uh, I'm not talking sweet giggles that are appropriate. I'm talking howling with laughter. I was laughing so loudly and so hard that there was tears streaming down my cheeks. Everyone else is still having their dinner. And I'm crying with laughter, and the entire time internally I'm like, God, what are you doing? Make it stop! This is so embarrassing. (laughs) Keeps going. People finish their meals. I'm still sitting there, (laughs) crying. That—that's what we're talking about. It was embarrassing. I couldn't walk, so Julian had to help me to the car. I'm still crying with laughter. We get to the evening meeting. I still can't walk. He has to help me from the car to the meeting. At this church, they love to pray for people who walk into the meeting. And you can imagine I was a magnet for them. They started praying, more Lord, which was a disaster. I fell to the floor in a heap, still howling with laughter. Julian totally abandoned me, went off and found a seat somewhere. And I'm crying with laughter. I can't walk. So I start crawling towards where Julian and our friends are sitting, thankfully around the back. I'm still crying with laughter. I cried and howled with laughter for an hour and a half. I couldn't tell you what we sang in worship, couldn't tell you what the preach was. I must have been slightly distracting for those around me. And the entire time I'm having this internal dialogue with God, what on earth are you doing? This is so embarrassing. Please, please, please make it stop. Make it stop. And eventually I just think, well, I can't make it stop and God's not making it stop. So I might as well learn what he's trying to tell me. And he started speaking to me about our wedding day, dealing with some disappointment over the day, dealing with some disappointment about Mum being so sick. And then he said this to me. He said, what I'm teaching you is simply warfare. You found yourself in a battle and you did not know what to do. I'm teaching you how to fight. Next time you find yourself in a battle that seeks to overwhelm you, this is what you are to do. You are to get so happy in me. You are to find joy in God, and this is how you're to do warfare. So the following year, actually around a very similar time, I found myself in another battle. It was horrible. It was the worst battle I'd faced to date. And me and Julian didn't know what to do, and there was death all around us. And just at the moment where I thought I was going to give up and walk away, I remembered what God had taught me. And so I wrote on a list... All the things that were terrible about that situation. And I put that piece of paper on the floor and I turned some worship music on, some happy worship music. And I can tell you right there and then I did not feel like worshiping. But I put that worship music on and I worshiped until I found joy in God. And I can tell you it took a couple of hours. But eventually all the ashes in my heart were turned into beauty because that's what he promises to do. I tell you joy is not frivolity. It is strength. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. When you're in the presence of your enemies, don't go finding some high places to pull down some strongholds and things we're not called to do. Sit down and eat. Feast on his goodness, feast on his kindness, feast on his favor start laughing at the lies of the enemy. You look most like your papa when you do that. That's biblical spiritual warfare. Last one. The father is kinder than you dare believe. And the enemy wants us to keep believing that somehow God is a grouchy papa in heaven who is stern and distant and who is watching to wait for when we fall so that he can make us feel really bad about it. The enemy wants us to feel like he sets us up for a fail and then smacks us over the head for it. But the enemy is a liar. The the father is simply kinder than we ever, ever, ever can imagine. We cannot imagine even a, a tiny measure of his kindness. I love the moment when in Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to the synagogue and we're told on the Sabbath day, he's given the scroll to read and he opens up the scroll and he reads these words in Luke four eighteen: the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a beautiful prophecy that he reads from Isaiah 61. But if we understand the words of Isaiah 61, and if we know the context of that scripture, we'll know that Jesus leaves out the last line of the prophecy, which is a very odd thing to do. He leaves out on the day of the vengeance of our God. Why does he do that? Well, it's because Jesus, in his body, took every ounce of vengeance and punishment and judgment on himself. God in Christ swallowed up any punishment that was left for you and me. Which means Jesus is the favor-filled full stop of heaven. He ends the word from heaven over you and me with favor. There is no judgment or punishment coming from the Father to you. No matter what you do, there is no punishment for you. Because Jesus has ended the word with favor. The heart of your papa towards you is favor, it's kindness, it's goodness. I love in Psalm 23, it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. Surely. Not maybe if I've been good, maybe if I've made the right decisions, maybe I've, I've done the right things. Not maybe if I'm not in a battle at that moment. If I'm in a battle, it's a different scenario. No, no, no. Surely, every day of your life, surely, goodness and mercy will follow you. I want to tell you there is a target on your back. And he is chasing you down. And you cannot outrun him. And you cannot hide from him. And that target on your back is neither judgment nor punishment. That target on your back is for his goodness and his mercy. They are your ever-present companions. They are chasing you down. No matter what your day is looking like, you need to understand this and live in the good of this, that his goodness and mercy are literally right there with you, that he has promised, that he has pledged himself to showing you goodness and mercy all of the days of your life. So when you're in that boat and the waves are threatening to overwhelm you, I want to tell you, no matter how high those waves are, no matter how fast you feel like you you're sinking. His goodness and mercy are chasing you down so that even in that boat, you will know them to be true in your life. His goodness and mercy, surely they follow you. We're out of time, but I wonder if you'll stand with me for a moment. I just believe that in this moment, Holy Spirit wants to help tune us in to the words that he is speaking over each of us. That just even in this moment, he wants to open up our hearts to understand the goodness and mercy that flow from Papa to us that even in this moment, he just wants to start whispering words of empowerment and dislodge words that have come to us from others or even from the enemy or even from within ourselves that have been words that have been disempowering. But in this moment, Holy Spirit is speaking words of courage and words of greatness over each and every one of us. And some of you desperately need joy. Some of you have found yourself in a battle where it's so overwhelming that you feel entirely paralyzed. Now, in this moment, Holy Spirit just wants to breathe fire over your heart. That joy would be ignited once again. And so I wonder if with me you'd just invite Holy Spirit to come. He's already in the room. (laughs) But to intensify his presence over you and over me. Not going to take a long time of ministry at all. He's really good at doing things quickly. (laughs) But just invite Holy Spirit to come and you will know which things I've said today that Holy Spirit had his fingerprints on in your heart. So just invite Him to come and breathe fresh life to you. If you are facing a battle, has overwhelmed you in Jesus name I speak joy over you joy where the enemy has robbed you of hope and has t- sought to bring despair I speak joy and joy is a fruit of the spirit which means that it can it is your portion regardless of the circumstance you are in and joy is more than happiness it's not less which means joy does also come out in laughter joy does change the countenance of our faces doesn't disappear when things go wrong. And in Jesus' name, I come against the lies of the enemy, where he's wanted to make you feel like you're still a dirty sinner trying to claw yourself out of sin. That you're nothing and nobody and what the world has said is accurate. I come against those lies in the name of Jesus. And I speak what heaven speaks over you, which is greatness and destiny. You were made to shake and shape nations. Whether you're a full-time mom at home or whether you're a university professor, whatever sphere of influence you are in, you were created to shape nations. That is your inheritance as a child of God. And so, Father, I just ask that your voice would get ever increasingly louder in our hearts and minds. That we would hear the words spoken by our older brother, Jesus. Words of love and affirmation and righteousness. And that as we go from here, we would know your goodness and mercy manifesting themselves as our ever-present companions. In Jesus' name I pray.